wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. That's a psalm of David. And the Lord says in that psalm of David, he's going to call me father. But I find no reference in the Old Testament where David ever called him father. It doesn't mean he didn't happen. But there's no reference recorded there. Now, I, I mean, if, if you're like, I know a reference in the Old Testament where they called God their father... I'm actually very okay with that. I'm very interested in that. It would still be, at the very least, it's a very rare occasion. I just couldn't find one. And yet, this psalm speaks of David calling him father, and and then Jesus, who is the ultimate son of David. Jesus is the one who's the fulfillment of all that was ever promised to David. Can't stop calling God his father. So it's very clear to me that Jesus is the fulfillment of what I'm reading in, in Psalm chapter 89. Not only does Jesus call God his Father, but Jesus also teaches his disciples, that includes us, to call God our Father. So it's shocking on the cross, Jesus prays that psalm in a way that I, I doubt any Jew had ever heard that psalm quoted with the first word, Father. And then Jesus has spent the last three years teaching his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And Jesus spends time investing in his disciples that you're my friends, you're my brothers. I don't call you servants. And this is our Father. Not in the same exact sense that Jesus is Son, but in the sense by faith we're adopted into God's family if you're a believer in Christ. And you are his sons and daughters. And we call God our Father. And Jesus is teaching this radical concept, which would have been very difficult or hard for a Jew to to comprehend or understand. But another another difference between David's prayer and Jesus' prayer, not only does David not use the word Father in Psalm 31, but also David's prayer is a prayer of distress. If you read the entire psalm, clearly David is distressed and he's crying out and he needs God to intervene. That's not Jesus' prayer. When Jesus prays these last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, it's not a cry of distress, it's a shout of victory. It's a shout of assurance and confidence, completely opposite of David's prayer. So it uses some of, some of the same words, but in a much more elevated sense than David would have ever used them, or any Jew would have ever spoken them. The second thing we learn from this is that Jesus doesn't end his life recommitting himself to an abstract, impersonal doctrine, or teaching, or truth. And what I mean by that is essentially along these lines. It's easy for me sometimes to fall into this trap of of when I sin, I've broken a commandment. I've broken a standard. God gave us rules. Jesus gave us rules. I don't always keep those rules, and I break a standard. But Jesus isn't really merely committing himself to a standard of, I've lived a certain way. I've done certain things. I've kept a certain standard. He's recommitting himself to a person. Because at the end of the day, 
A Christian is in relationship with the living God who created them. Not only created them, but redeemed them and took away their sin by Jesus dying on a cross. It's about a relationship more than it's about a standard. And when I reduce faith, Christianity, to a standard, I'm losing what the Bible intends to be there. That's why David, back in Psalm 51, when he repented of his sin of adultery, he repented of his sin of of orchestrating the death of a husband, he said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He didn't just break a rule. He didn't say, uh, I have broken the sixth commandment and also the seventh commandment too. But he sinned against a person. He sinned against God. And he confessed it as such. In the same way, Jesus is confessing, he's professing his trust in his Father. It's about a relationship, not just a way of living. The implication uh, when you pertain to the Lord's Supper is when we partake in the Lord's Supper, when Christians partake, it's not just something we do. It's more than an ordinance. We're not just observing an ordinance. We're not just observing a sacrament. We are participating in a relationship with the living Christ. He's not laid in a tomb forever. He rose from the grave. He spent 40 days with his disciples. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he still ministers to his people. One meaningful way is through the Lord's Supper. It is a ministration of grace. It's a way in which he increases and bolsters the faith that we have. If you're a Christian, I've got on the back foyer counter, I put it out every once in a while, and then other times I forget But since I'm kind of talking about the Lord's Supper, I've got a sheet on the back foyer counter, front and back. It's called Theology of the Lord's Supper. And it's the understanding I came to as to what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. It's more than just an ordinance. It's more than just an act of obedience. It's an engagement with Christ, our Savior. It's an engagement with Christ, our Lord. And he ministers to his people through this demonstration of the gospel a demonstration of his body given, a demonstration of his blood shed. And to keep those things in mind when you participate as a Christian. The third thing we can learn, Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we learn something about the power and the security of God's hands. Now I personally, I'm older, so I'm going to remember some things that some people won't remember because they're too young to know. But I can't help when I think about this idea of, of committing oneself into the hands of God and the security that is found there. It reminds me of a radio broadcast that uh, was on for many, many years, and it goes like this. Elizabeth Elliot studied Greek in college with the goal of working as a Bible translator. Shortly after arriving in Ecuador, she married fellow missionary Jim Elliot, who was later killed while trying to reach out to the fierce Alka Indians, also known as the Wadani. Soon after the tragic incident, Elizabeth took her three-year-old daughter Valerie, and they lived among the same Indian tribe that had killed her husband. Here on Gateway to Joy, Elizabeth shares with us the insights from her remarkable journey as a daughter, mother, wife, widow, and missionary. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot, talking today with a guest...
And that's how she began every broadcast uh, for a lot of years. Actually, I, I was looking for this, and I think there were some years where she used a different intro. But for most of her ministry, it was, you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms, or however, however she exactly said that. But that was her assurance. And her, her radio program was called Gateway to Joy because she said, no matter what you are experiencing, if you turn it over to Christ, if you turn it over to Lord, it will become your gateway to joy. It, didn't, it doesn't make any difference what the circumstances are. That if you turn that over to him, it becomes a gateway to joy. I highly recommend her, her broadcast. They're still widely available uh, I don't know if they're actually on radio programs, but if you look up her name, Elizabeth Elliot, I think it may be elizabethelliot.org or something, they have all of her radio broadcasts. She has such wisdom into relationships and parenting and roles within society and family. She's, she's brilliant, and she speaks with such measured wisdom. She never seemed hurry. I was always amazed at how much she said in the little bit of time she had on her broadcast. Because it wasn't a very lengthy broadcast, but uh, she spoke with great insight. So that's Elizabeth Elliot, something about somebody who also committed her life into the hands of God. I remember it was Sonia gave me the book to read, where because uh, I've read some of her books, but there was one particular book that kind of explored how she decided to go back to the people that killed her husband and have her four, four or five other missionaries. She's going back there with their three-year-old daughter. And I'm like, if I were a parent, and I'm sure her parents were like, are you sure this is what you want to do? To go back to this tribe? They killed your husband and these other men? And she went back. It blows my mind that she did that. But that was her gateway to joy. She believed that's what God had opened up, that's what God had called her to, and that's what she did. And God blessed that ministry, as it turns out. But compare the security of God's hands to what you find in Hebrews chapter 10. So if you've got a few Bible, you're going to find that on page 1007. Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a pew Bible and you've got your own Bible, you're kind of on your own. But I remember always thinking Hebrews is after all of the T books. So 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Philemon hardly counts. And then you've got Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 10, oh, I, I can cut that out of the audio. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 10, there's something else we learn about the hands of God. I'm going to pick up at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. The author writes to the Hebrew people, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth... There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31 reads, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's no safer place to be than to entrust oneself to the hands of the living God. There is no more dangerous place 
the to not put yourself into his care. And those, those hands are fearful to fall into those hands because you'll fall under his judgment. See, and the, and the juxtaposition, what the author of Hebrews is saying is under Old Testament law, if somebody was deserving of a crime of death, it was the witnesses that testified against him that picked up the first stones. So if somebody were guilty of a, of, a, of a capital crime, the witnesses picked up the first stones and threw them as a judgment against that individual. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The author of Hebrews is saying, if you don't place your faith in Christ, God's going to pick up those stones. And when I'm talking, it's a metaphorical illustration. God is the one who testifies against you. God is the one that is going to condemn you. God's wrath is the wrath that you will face. It's his vengeance. It's not somebody what somebody else says. You're falling into God's hands and he's a holy God. Those that don't choose to put their faith in Christ. The next thing we learn. Fourthly, Jesus says, I commit my spirit. Jesus entrusts himself. He entrusts his spirit, his future to his father. In just a moment, Jesus breathes his last. And there will be a temporary separation between his material body and his immaterial spirit. And in that very day, in that moment, the spirit, his last breath is, is exhaled. He will be with the thief in paradise. But his body will be laid in a tomb. And it will rise on the third day and there will be a unification. Death is separation. Jesus died on the cross. There was a separation between his body and and his immaterial spirit. Every person who has ever died, there's a separation between the immaterial you and the physical you. But the Bible makes it very clear the material you is just as much the real you as the part you can't see. I've said this before, and it's probably a hobby horse or a pet peeve at this point. You know, when somebody dies and they're in a casket, and, and it is sometimes said that's not the real them, the real them has, they're a believer, will say, the real them has gone to be with Christ or God in heaven. The real them is also in that tomb, in that casket. That is so much the real them that God has promised that that body is not going to stay dead. It will be resurrected and united with the spirit that is before God. It's the real them too. So Jesus commits or entrusts himself to his father. That word is used by Paul. When Paul meets with the elders of the Ephesian church, he uses the exact same word. He uses the word, it's translated commend. Paul says to the elders of of Ephesus, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you his inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I'm entrusting you to God, he says to the Ephesian church. He, He can't be with them on this particular occasion. He meets with the elders, but he's entrusting that church and that leadership to God. Peter writes the same thing. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In each case, it's the same word. Jesus is translated commit. Here it's translated commend. Here it's translated entrust. Those that suffer according to God's will, entrust your soul to God. We all entrust our soul, our being to someone. For many people, you really entrust yourself to yourself. You think you can take care of your own house and your, old bu- your own business, and nothing could be further from the truth. You may manage for a while, and you may successfully manage for a while. 
But let me assure you, there will come a day where you will go through a dark valley, even if it's not, even if it's not until the day of the, the, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of death, you will find out it's bigger than you are. And that there is only one who has ever conquered death, and that would be Christ. So fourthly, Jesus commits his spirit to his Father. Lastly, what Jesus says, he says, calling out in a loud voice, which kind of gives the idea or dismisses of the wrong idea that Jesus on the cross is slowly ebbing away, growing weaker and weaker and weaker until he can't stand it anymore and death overtakes him and overcomes him. That doesn't really seem to be the picture that Luke, the gospel writer, gives us. He calls out in a loud voice. That loud voice is two words in the Greek. We get our English word mega from loud. If you were to translate it, it's mega. Voice is phone. So literally, if you want to translate it, it would be he calls out in a megaphone. Now, he doesn't have an amplified megaphone that he's holding, but that gives you some indication of how loud and in control he is of what he's saying in this last moment. He's not slowly ebbing away. He cries out so that all can hear, who want to hear or are paying attention, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then the gospel writers say in different places he dismisses his spirit. He breathes his last. He seems to be in total control of this situation. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up. Lenski, the commentator Lenski, who I admire greatly, uh, he kind of comments on this. He says, generalizing from the experiences of men, because the body, mind, and soul of Jesus run... it's It's a sentence fragment. So he's saying, how should we understand this? He's saying, Jesus's body isn't exactly like our bodies. Because Jesus isn't exactly like who we are. He is fully God and fully man. So in our experience, somebody who's going through what Jesus is going through, your life would slowly ebb away, just like those two thieves on either side of them. But Jesus isn't exactly like what we are. He is the sent one from the Father. He's the Messiah, fully God, fully man. And he commands his life. And he dismisses his life. I think there's at least, that's at least worth thinking about. So there are three reactions or responses to Jesus on the cross. The first response is that of the centurion in 47. Secondly, the crowds in 48. And lastly, Jesus' acquaintances and the women in verse 49. Let's look at each one of those. In 47, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. What did he see? This is the Roman officer who's in charge of the other officers that are there, the other soldiers that are there. He's the one in charge. What did he see? He obviously has been there the whole time. What did he hear? Unless he was talking with somebody else or not paying attention, he would have heard all seven words that Christ gave from the cross. None of them were lost on him, unless he was too busy gambling for the clothes at the bottom and he wasn't paying attention. Uh, I don't know exactly. He saw the darkness. He knew something about the earthquake and the rock splitting. I don't think he would have known that the curtain in the temple had been torn from top to bottom. That would have been back in the city. But he saw and experienced all of this. And he said, 
Certainly, this man was innocent, which is a very unfortunate translation because the word innocent is that word is, is I don't know if it's ever translated innocent by by the ESV in any other case. It's generally translated righteous. The second word that is typically used would be just, so that he said, certainly this man was righteous. I think that speaks of something greater than innocent. Innocent means he didn't do something. Righteous means who he is. It's positive. He's just. He's righteous. It's very interesting the way what Mark's gospel says about this centurion. And when the centurion who who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So what... What particularly caught his attention wasn't the darkness, it wasn't the earthquake, the rock splitting, it wasn't what Jesus had said earlier in in the crucifixion, it wasn't the, the, the silence when all these are accusing him. He saw in the way in which he breathed his last, the power, the command, the megaphone, what he wanted everyone to hear. He saw those details in particular. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Certainly, he was righteous. So the question is, was he a genuine believer? Kind of sounds like Sunday school. Was he a genuine believer? And there's, there's disagreements among commentators. I think the majority think he was a believer. And I would put myself in that camp. I'll give you what Lenski says uh, in answering the question for himself. He writes, Why reduce these confessions to the lowest possible level? If they amounted to next to nothing, why were the inspired writers allowed to set them down for all, all time? The Christian view is to let these confessions stand their full weight. The gospel writers pay such attention to this centurion at the foot of the cross. The gospel writers are careful to say, on one case, he said, truly this is the Son of God. In another case, certainly this man is righteous. The fact that that's recorded so carefully seems to indicate to Lenski, I would agree, that this man was a genuine believer. You know, what he did with that, how it was developed, what became of it, how did he grow in faith, we're not told any of those things. But it's, a, it's faith from a very unlikely source. So I would say, for the centurion, this is a revealing event. A revealing event. What didn't seem to be any different from any of the other hundreds of crucifixions that the centurion probably participated in, or at least knew about, this was a revealing event because he saw Jesus in a light he had never considered before. That's the first response. The second response is that of the crowds in verse 48. And although the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts, what did they see? Well, depending on how long each person in that crowd may have been there, or whether some people, you get the idea, were just passing through on the road... They would have heard and seen many of the same things. But we're told something about their motivation for being there because it's called a spectacle. It's a theatrical event. I kind of wanted to show you a video, like a video excerpt, but it's really not a, a very gory movie or bad movie, but I'm like, well, I'm not sure. I don't want to get myself in trouble. So I decided not to. But it's from the movie True Grit with Jeff Bridges, which is just a such a good movie. Uh, I love the script of which I think is taken almost directly from the book. But uh, the book, the movie True Grit starts off with, uh, with a hanging. These different people are being hung for these different crimes, and, and the first guy kind of you know, gives his last words, 
And then the, the second guy gives his last words, and the third guy is getting ready to give his last words, but because he's not of the right ethnicity, they just put a bag over his head. And then, and then the floor drops out, and there's, there's a huge crowd there. Hundreds of people have gathered for this hanging, which I think was really not unusual. Just like at the crucifixion, there were, there were crowds. It was a theat- it's a spectacle. It's theater. There's no TV to watch. So, so the floor drops out in true grit. The three men are hung, and there's some gas from the crowd. <gasps> and then there's this huge round of applause. That was good. That was, that was quite the event. That's what we came to see. So these crowds, in verse 48, that assembled for the spectacle, did they, did they receive a spectacle? Was it what they expected? Was it, was it a theatrical event? Well, in some sense, it was certainly something they'd never quite seen before, even if they'd attended other hangings. But it tells me they returned home beating their breasts. On some level, they feel convicted enough that something took place that never should have happened. What just took place was an unrighteous deed, and they're beating their breasts. I don't think their reaction is that much different from Judas, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. I think Judas beat his breast and he threw the money back to the temple. I didn't want to do this for 30 pieces. He never expected Jesus would actually be crucified. He never really expected Jesus would die on a cross. He thought Jesus would break out with all of his power and all of his command and win the day. And Jesus goes as a lamb before its slaughterer. Judas, I think, beat his breast. I think these, these individuals, these crowds, beat their breast. And they go home. But they go home unchanged. There's a key difference between what the crowd saw compared to what the centurion saw. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, partly because I don't have a lot of time, and partly because it's so nuanced, uh, you kind of got to take my word for it. I think Emily and Matthew can check me out to see if this is right or not. But... Uh, the word saw in both cases. The centurion saw something, the crowd saw something. It's the same verb, saw. But the difference is this. When it's used of the centurion, it's a single verb, singular in, in action, and it's masculine. What they saw, what the, what the Roman centurion saw, his focus of attention was on that man, on that cross, and the way in which he died, and what he said. And it changed his life. What the crowd saw is a plural verb, and it's not masculine, it's not feminine, so then it's neuter, it's neutral. What their focus of attention is, is not on the man on the cross and what he says, it's on all the events, it's on the spectacle, it's on the theater, they're taking it all in. And they go home beating their breasts because something happened that shouldn't have happened. But they're not, they're not changed. Their faith isn't in Christ. They just know this was different and it seems very dark. So for them, for the crowds, this was an, an uncomfortable, convicting event. Judas was convicted. Judas was uncomfortable with what he did. But he wasn't restored. And he didn't repent. Then thirdly, you've got acquaintances and women in verse 49. All his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, that's a very unusual word, acquaintances. You'd think if, they, if it were simple, as simple as disciples, it would have used the word disciples. But it's not disciples, it's acquaintances, which I think as I looked at it, 
It translates something like, uh, those who knew him. So, all those who knew him, and women, I don't think there's a definite article before, there shouldn't be the, all those who knew him and women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. We get four bits of information about this fourth group. The first bit of information is that these are persons who knew and or followed Jesus. They knew Jesus or followed Jesus, or both. Two, three, and four, they're from Galilee. They stood at a distance, and they're watching these things. Why are they standing at a distance? Some people say, well, the Roman soldiers are in charge. They want to keep push back the crowds, especially Galileans. That's possible. I think an easy solution is, by this time, all three crucified persons are dead. There's no reason to be there anymore. The crowds are going home, have gone home. Uh, the two thieves only died because their legs were broken, and so they expired rather quickly. They found Jesus was already dead. They pierced his side. But all three are dead. So those who knew Jesus and the women stand at a distance, partly because their heart is so drawn to Jesus. They believed in him. They loved him. They worshipped him. They honored him. They believed certain things about him. And it's hard to leave. The crowds, who really aren't vested in Jesus, really don't care that much one way or the other. They're just there for the spectacle. They go home, beating their breasts. It shouldn't have happened, but what are you going to do? But love keeps them near. Especially the women, I think, because as I read in the story, the women want to know exactly what happens to that body. Because after the Sabbath day, they intend to go back and wrap that body in spiced linens and give him more of an honorable, proper burial. So they want to know what... They're, they're interested in knowing what happens to the body, which answers the question, why do they stand at a distance? And then the answer, I think, kind of comes suddenly in verse 50. So in verse 50, it reads, Now there is a man named Joseph... And it's so unfortunate because other than a New King James Bible or a King James Bible, it chooses not to include the word behold, which is right there in the text. It's not just, oh, and by the way, a guy named Joseph asked for the body. The women are looking, what is going to happen to this one that we love so dearly? That we hung on every word. We believed what he said. We confessed him as the Lord's Messiah. They're hanging on this. This is a tense moment. And behold, Joseph, of all people, who would have thought a guy like Joseph, so a member of the council, who would have thought a guy like that would all of a sudden rise to the occasion and ask for the body so that he could lay that body in his own tomb that nobody had ever been laying in, and all of this is a fulfillment of prophecy as well. It's quite a remarkable event. It's meant to be more remarkable than the way your verse 50 reads. Behold ought to be in there somewhere. For these acquaintances and and these women, Jesus' death is a confounding event. They're not really sure what to make of it. Based upon what they believed up to that point, based upon what has happened, they are at a loss to understand So you've got three responses to the death of Jesus. The centurion, it's a revealing event. For the crowds, it's a convicting event. For the acquaintances and the women, it's a confounding event. What is it for you? What is it for you? 
When you think, this isn't probably the first time you've ever heard the story about Jesus dying on a cross. So what is it for you? Is it revealing Christ's, uh, God's work of salvation in the person of his son who takes away sin? Is it for you like that never should have happened? Jesus was, he was a good man. He did, you know, he did the right things. It was a, a miscarriage of justice. Is it just a, a convicting event? You've, you've arrived at a decision about it. You've passed your own verdict, but it hasn't changed your life. Or is it still just a confounding event, and you're not even sure what to make of it, why he died? And why God re- would require that he die? Why would it be the purpose of God from before the creation of the world that the Son would come to take away sin? It's all a mystery to you. We all fall in one of those three categories, and we probably slip in and out of them from time to time. We're meant to have a, it's meant to be a revealing event where we see God's work of salvation. The, the Roman centurion praises God. He glorifies God. God is glorified when we recognize who the Son is in taking away sin. It's God's work of redemption in the Son. Because God does what none of us can do, which is solve our own sin problem. 